0: I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring emails. Today on the show, I'm talking with Sophie from Fable, the design-forward pet gear brand that solves problems for you and your furry pals. Along with her brother Jeremy, Sophie leveraged her experience in consumer brand investing to launch and scale a new kind of pet brand. We explore how to identify evolving consumer trends, the timeline of product production, and why companies need to fix real-life problems in order to maximize word-of-mouth marketing. As always, we hope you enjoy the show. Bread Receipt Are you from New York originally?
1: Uh, yes. I like to, I, mean, you know, I was born here. So I like to say that I did take a, a little bit of a detour and, uh, lived in South Florida for a while, but I, I don't like to admit that too often if I can help it. So I've been in New York for a long time. I was born here. I'm a New Yorker. I dare anyone to, to challenge that.
0: <laughs> what brought you back to New York after moving? Was it family moved back or did you move back for school?
1: Um, I Well, I went to school in Boston. My family actually did move to New York. So that was part of it. All my friends were here, but I just, I think uh, sometimes you find a place and it really, really resonates with you. And New York is that for me. I just, I get a lot of my energy from just being in the city and, and I, I love everything about it. I even love the weather. So <laughs> Um, having grown up in South Florida, it's a, it's a departure from what I was used to, but in a positive way for me. So, yeah.
0: That's awesome. What, what do you study in school?
1: I studied math, um, and public health. I actually had aspirations for a while to be an epidemiologist. So my life right now would be very, very different <laughs> if that had happened. Um, but I ended up, uh, really leaning into the math part and ended up getting a job in trading, um, at a hedge fund actually when I was in high school so my senior year of high school and then kept working there during college um, actually took some time off college and graduated a little early because that was you know prime time in the I was trading credit derivatives so it was prime time in the credit markets and I yeah took a little break <laughs> from from school and um, focused on that at the time
0: How did you start working for a hedge fund in high school?
1: Um, I mean, it, it's, it was a very, uh, fortuitous event. Actually, I didn't even know what a hedge fund was when I was in high school, as I think probably, hopefully most, most high schoolers don't. Um, I was supposed to that summer be working at a seafood restaurant, like a really jivey seafood restaurant to help pay for college. And I think, you know, how in high school, you kind of get boxed in, you get a, a label, everybody gets, Kind of a title or, or known for something, and I think I was kind of the math girl. So, one of my classmates, his father was a partner at this hedge fund, and they were looking for an intern to sit on the credit desk. Um, it was a quant hedge fund, so very, very math heavy. And anyway, I, I got an interview. Had no, I showed up in my school uniform. I had no idea even how to interview at a real job. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but fortunately you know, he asked me a couple like calculus questions or something and that was it. And then I <laughs> got the job and um, ended up working there for almost 10 years. So it was, uh,
0: that is crazy. Also far different from um, the seafood dive.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, Can seafood. you imagine? I mean, there's an alternate universe out there somewhere in the multiverse. There's a Sophie backler who is like, yeah, working at this Horrible divey seafood restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. So <laughs> thank God I'm not her. <laughs> not that there's anything, else, right. but it, it, it would, it, it was, I, I don't even eat seafood. <laughs> so it was just a, a horrible match.
0: <laughs> How did you end up um, changing industries originally? Like, what what did you end up doing after the hedge fund? Did you jump from the hedge fund into like the brand space?
1: Yeah. I mean, so as much as I liked trading, I mean, it is a very uh, adrenaline filled job. And I loved the math, especially in the beginning, because, you know, it was the wild west in in the credit market when I first started and we were building models from scratch and it was just super, super exciting. It was never my passion. I mean, it was never something that I woke up every day. I'm like, God, I can't wait to create to trade some credit derivatives. like, God, I'm really making the world better. Um, and so I think I always kind of had a foot out the door. I was always looking to to move on from it, to be frank, and got again, kind of kind of lucky. I had built this software for my trading job. It was um, data visualization software that just kind of helped me with some data analysis that I was doing at the time. And my brother, um, who was a management consultant at the time realized that there was like a broader application for this specific software for management consultants. And so we, we both left our jobs and started a startup to basically sell the software into, um, uh, to, to management consultants and spent about two years doing that. And then that company actually got acquired um, by a software business out in Germany called ThinkSell. So it was like a very, very quick intro into the startup world where we started a company, we ran a company and we sold a company in less than two years. And it it definitely got me excited about the world of startups. Um, but again, like data visualization software wasn't like a super strong passion project. It was, it was something I loved doing, but it wasn't, I didn't feel this broader purpose. Um, ended up parlaying that into a role in venture capital um, at a at a fund called collaborative fund where we invest in companies that are pushing the world forward companies that have a positive social impact in the world, even though it's a VC fund, not a, not an impact fund. And that was kind of my shift from like the finance world and the startup world into venture, which is kind of at the intersection of the two. And there I was focused on consumer brands. So brands that were, you know, again, had some sort of, a social mission or had some sort of positive impact in the world. And that's really where I developed a a love for for brand and investing in brands that, you know, that are kind of for a new type of consumer that is a much more um, uh, discerning and diligent and conscious consumer. And gosh, this is a long story. It makes me feel old that it takes me this long to tell my background now, but um, ended up writing the last check. You know, in uh, um, in this like consumer products initiative that I was running at the time, into a company called Fable, which is a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business that's focused on creating innovative and um, innovative pet gear that really solves problems for for pets and their humans, and have been you know, co-founded that with my brother again, who I did the first business with, um, and yeah, we've been we've been building that business for the last years i'm still a partner at collaborative fund so i still invest there um but more focused on sustainability and sustainable technologies versus the sort of more brand and e-commerce focused investments i was making before
0: what was it like um i guess i'm curious about the first the software Mm -hmm. data visualization business when you were building that software for yourself did you have any inclination that you were going to explore selling it uh, to others
1: uh, or,
0: or having others use it no, outside of no, yourself? No,
1: not at the very beginning. It was really to solve a very specific pain point for my life, um, which which wasn't a super big pain point in the role that I was in. So it it basically took images of charts and reverse engineered them into raw data. And so I used it, you know, every once in a while, but it wasn't, that wasn't what I was doing all day. Whereas management consultants, at least at the time, they didn't really have a solution for this. And yet they were constantly getting charts and PDFs and reports that needed to be put into an Excel doc that then needed to be converted into a chart that they could use in their, you know, like McKinsey's branding or whatever. I hadn't really seen that. I didn't consider selling it to anybody else because I didn't think that there was really that big of a need for it. It was really Jeremy, my my brother and co-founder in that business, who was the management consultant. And he was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this all day. It's super painful. You, literally, we would go to these um, consulting offices and people would be with a ruler and a pencil, like trying to map out the data points on a chart. Or they would be sending it overseas and wouldn't get the data back for another 48 hours. And Anyway, it, it, it was a clear pain point that we then had a solution for. And it became kind of a, an obvious way to exit my trading life <laughs> by starting this business.
0: What was the experience like building something and also selling it that rapidly? What, especially coming from a full-time gig and jumping directly into now running a startup in a totally different industry. Yeah. I mean, it was
1: definitely the, it's the best education you get you can get is just to have to jump into the deep end immediately. And you have no idea what you're doing. I did as much research as I could. I read every single book I could about entrepreneurship and starting businesses, most of which were completely irrelevant. And I did not (laughs) access or use at once during the process i took um i took classes at like uh, a general assembly in a couple of places around new york about like agile agile um uh development and just gave myself a crash course and anything i was watching youtube videos i was just trying to figure out how do you how do you build this thing because it was you know i i had some coding experience obviously in building this but it was in it was a total mess it was made for me it wasn't it, there was no Front end to it. There was no UX. I didn't know how to do any of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we 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 scrambled and got it done, but it it was certainly a very messy process. It was also we bootstrapped that business. We didn't invest, we didn't have any investors. So it was basically all my savings. <laughs> and I was like, this better work, or, or I'm in, in pretty big trouble. But I think you either just are crushed by the anxiety of that kind of experience where nobody can tell you how to do it. You are completely in a desert and you have to build, you know, an oasis of your own. Um, and that can be crushing and, and overwhelming for some people, or you embrace it and you like it. And I think I have a very high risk tolerance in general, and just across the board of my life some of that is just in my personality and some of that is probably born from my first career in trading where you have to have some risk tolerance um and I you know I have a little bit of that adrenaline junkie in me where the 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 not knowing and the fear is a good motivator I think fear can either be a good motivator or again like crippling (laughs) for some people and for me it's not hopefully well we're still we're still in like act 2 of
0: my career. Yeah, you're like I'm still in the middle <laughs> yeah, of this right all now. these things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you um or wh- what were some of the, like the main lessons that you feel like you learned during the time of building and selling that first business that helped you parlay that into a venture role again in kind of a different industry, right? Because at that point you started investing in Consumer brands. Yeah. Yeah. What what drew you to, I'm like asking you 15 questions. What drew you to invest in consumer brands?
1: Yeah. My answer is so obnoxious and cliche that it always embarrasses me. But after we sold the business, I did the yeah, super cliche thing of backpacking around the world. Um, basically just (laughs) took a backpack. I had maybe 15 things in it. I had nothing and I just Started going east and just kept going <laughs> until I came back, and that experience was so impactful to me in terms of my own consumer behavior. In term, it just it was such a it was such a key lesson that I don't need that much stuff in my life to be happy, and that this um, single backpack that I had for almost a year was all that I needed, and it really reoriented my thinking about my own consumer behavior, and then also the cultural shift that we were seeing at the time around this sort of more conscious consumer who isn't as interested in just buying stuff for the sake of buying it. And you know, when you have just a backpack to fill, you're really thoughtful if you have to get rid of something and you have to get something new. Um, so I was doing a lot of research on brands as I was traveling around. And it just, it, it, it became this Um, personal education that then I parlayed into kind of a natural education of learning more about what was going on in broader consumer trends. At the time, this was like just when Warby Parker was coming up and just as Dollar Shave Club got, I think, acquired um, for like a billion dollars. And it was very early in this new wave of consumer brands. Um, So it wasn't a given that this was going to be a space worth looking at and investing in. But I came across some writing um, that Craig Shapiro, the founder of Collaborative Fund, had done around this concept he has called the villain test, which was super illuminating for me, and some writing he had done around consumers just being much more thoughtful about the the impact their dollars make and you know, buying more buying from more sustainable brands and higher quality brands and kind of uh, moving away from incumbents and and towards companies that you know are more thoughtful about their place in the world and anyway it just it really made me think about consumer and really get passionate about wanting to invest in this space and then my experience with Digit which was the the um, enterprise SaaS business enterprise SaaS startup that we had co-founded um I didn't know again I didn't really know much about venture. It wasn't that I wanted to get into venture. It was that I really fell in love with the mission behind Collaborative Fund and really really what you know Craig's writing really resonated with me. But I did also see the value of venture. I think there's a lot you can say that's negative about venture and about taking venture money and you know we could do a you know 2 hour podcast just about that I think but there is also, there are a lot of benefits having bootstrapped that first business. And again, being just total deers in the headlight and not having any idea what we were doing, the value of having a partner and having capital was, was extremely apparent to me. Um, you know, if it's the right partner and the right type of capital. So that's kind of how I ended up shifting into, into venture and got excited about it. But the bottom line was, I wasn't necessarily looking to do do any of it it was more that i happened to find this fun that that i i just really loved
0: and what what is the um villain oh yeah theory so much better at articulating
1: this you guys should all just google it but um the idea is that as much as we want to do good in the world we are sort of self-interested creatures and the the villain test is you're not just we're not just investing in companies that are doing good in the world. There has to be something that is good for you too, right? So the the sort of classic example he gives is, um, you know, uh, the Prius being this really eco friendly car, and everybody you, know, you can make this argument when it first came out that anybody who wants to, you know, cares about the world is going to shift their buying behavior and is going to start buying Prius and um, uh, but then you look at like a Porsche for instance, and it's, that's like a sexy, exciting car. And you don't really have that feeling in a Prius, it's Like you might feel good about your purchasing decision. You feel good about what you're doing, but there's still part of us that wants the sex appeal of a Porsche. Right. And so then you look at Tesla and that's a company that's at the intersection of those two things. So collaborative fund invests at the intersection of for-profit and for-good. So companies that are doing good, but also have some, some, you know, self-interest to them because we think those are the companies that have the most, the sort of massive ability to scale where consumers aren't giving up anything. In fact, they're gaining something by doing good in the world. Um, another example might be, you know, beyond meat or impossible foods. It's like for, for years, there were uh you know, vegan meat alternatives. What's what the brand Boca Burger it has been around for ages. I ate yeah. that as a kid. But you have to create a product that your consumers aren't sacrificing anything. It still tastes like meat. It's still a, a fun, exciting brand. It's not this, you know, kind of it, it, it. And it looks like meat. It's you know, it's the idea is to do good in the world without necessarily sacrificing much, or even potentially be gaining something. So.
0: I think it's interesting, too, nowadays with how many brands are out there um, who I feel like get trapped in like the never-ending desire to educate mm. on why their product yes. is better. Yes. But in reality, people are emotional beings that don't really do anything based on what is actually better for them. Or most things they don't.
1: Totally. And that's a, a thesis that we really carried over when we founded Fable, the the tech gear startup, which is we want to make this product that is so much better than anything else you can get in the market. But the very first thing is it has to look covetable, right? It has to look like something you want. Um, it's, you know, absolutely better. You know, we have this uh product called the game, which is a distracting wobble toy. Um, and there are, are wobble toys on the market. We, this product is vastly superior in every way to them. It lasts longer. It's quieter. It's, you know, it has multiple feet, uh, multiple settings to it. It has all these extra features, but we can't get to the point of explaining that to a consumer unless they see it and they want it, you know, and when you put it next to a, product that you would get at you know PetSmart or or on not to knock PetSmart but it, it a, a sort of <laughs> cheap product that's you know neon colored and made of plastic and like looks terrible it's an obvious choice you ours just looks so much better and you would want it in your home so exactly like the consumers are very emotional creatures we all are and you, you kind of have to Uh, lean into that without you know sacrificing the broader goal which is to create better better products
0: what first attracted you to the to the pet space after being involved in venture and seeing so many um, like the inner workings of so many consumer packaged goods brands
1: well I absolutely love animals. My brother and I have been animal obsessed since we were very, very little. So it, it's kind of an obvious space from a passion standpoint. You know, as I mentioned, I've had previous careers where I liked what I did on a day-to-day basis, but I wasn't passionate necessarily about the broader impact. Here I can wake up every single day and I'm so passionate and excited that we get to make the lives of animals and and the humans that live with them better. That's absolutely a a North star for me every time, every day that I wake up. But then it's also great business to be frank. It's something that it's a category I've looked at a lot on the venture side. It's a growing category. It's recession proof. There are all these cultural tailwinds around it, all these shifts in consumer behavior that really impact the pet space. So things like people getting married later and having kids later and getting pets earlier, spending more on their pets there's also this just societal shift that I think we all are experiencing in the way that we think about animals broadly as, you know, fully formed sort of sentient creatures that you know, are, have merit to them beyond just being in your home as kind of an accessory. They're, you know, something that you take care of, but also potentially a friend. It's dovetails, I think, a with the rise in veganism, for instance, it's just a different orientation around how people think about animals and and by extension pets. So we're seeing this huge boom. I mean, especially during COVID, I'm sure everyone's heard of the pandemic pet boom, but mass adoption, um, mass increase in adoption rates, increase in what people are spending both on food and products. It's, It's just this real, it's like a juggernaut. It's this incredible industry to be a part of. And yet, despite all that, we, my partner and I just really felt that the products on the market were all the same thing. It's just the exact same thing and like slightly different materials and slightly different colors, but nobody was rethinking, okay, what is a major pain point that people have around their pets and how do we solve that? And that's what we wanted to do is really build products from the ground up. We created our own tools, our own machinery. We, you know, created patent pending designs that don't exist anywhere else in the market. And the goal is always what's something that's painful about having a pet and how can we mitigate that so that you can just enjoy being with your pet. But there you know, there are so many pain points. There's fur, there's dirt they track in, there's stuff they eat off the street, there's anxiety, there's boredom, there's leaving them alone for, t- you know, there's so many things that we can solve. And a lot of those you know, our thesis is at least that a lot of those can be solved by just being more thoughtful about how we design products. You don't need like a, you know, rotating battery operated widget necessarily to solve some of these. It's a leash has been exactly the same for a century and everybody makes it exactly the same way. Why not think, more about what the pain points are around walking your dog and and redesign a product like that that's that's kind of where we we come from
0: did did you have the idea for the space and the brand before knowing the specific products that you were you were going to create
1: yeah and, and in fact the product set has evolved like pretty dramatically since we first started it it was a totally different set and then the more data and the more Um, research we did around what the actual pain biggest pain points were for consumers the more the specific products changed so yeah we we realized there was an opportunity in the pet gear space and we came up with the brand and our mission and our focus long before we you know had actual products to sell kind of
0: this might be a totally random question uh what do you view as The most important aspect of your job when building and aiming to scale a business like fable
1: Hmm. like as a as a co-founder you mean
0: yeah yeah i just i hear you talk a lot about the product and um solving problems in more creative formats and also listening to the feedback and data that you have coming in to adjust maybe the solutions that you're designing. I'm just curious if you spend most of your time focused on that aspect um, in a world that is also highly caught up in um, all front-end marketing Mm. work.
1: Yeah. I mean, our, our product, our focus has definitely been on product over marketing. We really don't do a ton of marketing yet. That's something that we are going to be increasingly focused on in 2022. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, the if you want to build a brand around truly creating innovative and um, problem solving products, you have to do that first. So our, 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 baseline most important mission is to make products that people love and actually solve problems for them our thesis being if you actually do make someone's life easier and better they're going to tell all their friends at the dog park about it and you don't need marketing they're going to come back and buy more products so that's the most important thing um long before before anything anything else um it's just to get the you feel
0: Do you feel like that thesis has been proven out in your experience? 100%. Knowing that you're not focused too much on marketing right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of our growth has been organic, so through word of mouth or through repeat purchase from customers. Um, And that, I think, is a testament to the products resonating and them actually working. So, so far, yes. I think this next stage where we really start to put our – feed on the gas pedals and, and um, start marketing and spreading the word to other consumers who haven't found us, you know, through word of mouth or through Googling specific pain points they might have for their pets, that it'll, it'll be interesting to see what that phase is like. Um, We do have a very, you know, uh, I think we have a very unique brand for the space. It's, it's a little more tongue in cheek, a little weirder. We, shy away from anything too cutesy or infantile and it's a little more sophisticated and, and sits more on the, at the intersection. We, we think uh, between pets and fashion and sports and interior design, it's not just a sort of cutesy dog brand. So I, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as we expand marketing, but I, I'm optimistic about it because I think there's just a lot of the same old in this space. You don't see a lot that's really different both on the product side and on the marketing side. Um, And yeah, who doesn't, who doesn't like to see, yeah, animal (laughs) animals in their advertising. Right.
0: What was your view on the time horizon to finding success when launching the brand, knowing that you were trying to create unique and new products? and also needing the feedback from customers to experience and, or like test, uh, I don't know the right term for this, but um, for people to have enough time to test the product also in a category that takes so much time to design, develop, and build product. I I look at your product and I feel like they're almost like home goods yeah. type products. Like they, uh, are so design focused and they live in people's houses next to like any other design uh, products that they would be buying. So I'm curious the time horizon that you were viewing to, to actually like nail the product.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it it's shorter in some ways and longer than than I was expecting in others. I take a pretty medium to long-term view about, about starting businesses just from my venture experience I know how long it can take to get a company up and running on the flip side I'm an optimistic person by nature and we had built and sold that last business pretty quickly so um and I had never actually created physical products before so that that part was took a there was a bit of a learning curve there to how long it takes to create something particularly if you're designing from scratch and building your own tooling and all that kind of stuff. So a shock at how long it it can take to really create innovative products. I'm, it, 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 it definitely was a longer process than expected, but in terms of the demand, that part was so much faster than we ever could have anticipated, partly because we didn't know we were going to hit the pandemic pet boom. And then partly we, you know, you hope that your products are going to resonate with people, but we couldn't have imagined how much they've resonated with people. Um, when we launched the game last year, the, the product focused on decreasing anxiety and boredom by distracting and, and keeping pets active and entertained, we just never could have imagined it was going to pick up the way that it did. And we just got a lot of press around it. And I think people, it, we launched it close to the holidays. So it became a really popular holiday gift. You, yeah, you just really can't predict those kinds of things. So production has taken longer than expected. Demand has has come much faster than we ever anticipated. But then with that comes um, production and supply chain issues, with which everyone in this country is experiencing right now because of the sort of latent effects of, of COVID nineteen and and shipping and transportation issues. So yeah, I mean, it's it's like a, it's a juggling act. You know, there's always, some things are better, some things are worse, some things are faster, some things are slower, and you just kind of have to match things up as best you can in any given moment, which is a daily, daily struggle for us, but uh, we're very lucky now to be at the point where we've gotten to the other end of creating this incredible suite of what I think of as extremely differentiated, extremely innovative, extremely high quality products that are uniquely ours. Nobody else can copy them because we own the patents on them and they are designed and, and made by us. Um, we have this great portfolio of that and we have people who wanna want to buy them. So now it's time to, again, match those two things up and, and that's really gonna be our focus for the next year.
0: Was there any anything that you felt was really surprising for you jumping from uh, one side of consumer brands to the other now running one
1: oh my gosh yes <laughs> well basically anything supply chain related i i <laughs> i specialized in consumer brand investing and so i as a vc have felt like i knew the space better than most other vcs Which you know generally vcs are generalists so they they wouldn't um, get super deep into something like supply chain analysis. But I did. I spent a lot of time on op- understanding ops and supply chains as an investor. But going on to the other side of it is a whole different ball game. it's it's embarrassing and ridiculous to me that I ever invested in companies in this space um, without knowing exactly how this works. But it is such a complex machine. It's such a antiquated industry in a lot of ways. and you really it, it's a it's a hard thing to wrap your head around unless you're actually experiencing it because it is so hard to there's so many moving pieces and so many elements that you have to understand. Um, you kind of have to you have to take your punches <laughs> to, to really, really appreciate what it's like. But now when I do look at consumer brands from an invest investment perspective at Flower to Fund, I can really understand and appreciate those things I have a much better um much better yeah handle on how long things are going to take where the where the sensitivities are where things are likely to go wrong how you can be helpful all that sort of thing i think is is much improved by my having experienced it myself so that's the silver lining i guess
0: (laughs) how do you personally balance um like the short-term desires that you have for the growth of the business versus your long-term priorities of creating impactful products and you know I feel like there's just always a part of you that's torn inside of like driving towards what you want immediately versus what you know is best in the long run
1: yeah I mean we're very lucky uh, in that our investors are Long-term thinkers and close friends and good people, which you know is a, was a very important litmus test for us in selecting who was going to invest in the company. And so we don't have that kind of pressure for growth for the sake of growth. I think they have a longer-term vision for what we're trying to do, which is you know a very overused word, but disruptive in the space. And you can't do that if you're only focused on on just KPI on just month-to-month growth, are, are we increasing the number of customers? No, you have to be thinking about what is the portfolio of products we're building? What is the brand credibility that we're building? How are we changing this space? How are we tapping into this cultural shift that we're seeing? So we don't get a ton of pressure the way that some other brands do, which is amazing because that means we can actually focus on the long-term vision. And then my, my partner, Jeremy, who, who runs product, he you know has a very high bar for what gets to market and what we're doing and he doesn't uh, make any contingencies. there are no compromises that's something we say a lot there are no compromises here so we can be focused on the longer term vision. I think the place where I struggle personally with the short term and the long term is this is a moment right we're experiencing this big change right now this isn't when we first started the company, we were starting to see some changes in the environment and some changes in social norms, but now it is happening. We are living it right now. And I don't want to miss our opportunity to get the word out. That doesn't mean we have to be, you know, selling millions and millions of products every month. It, it means we have to be talking to the consumer and let them know that there are alternatives and that there is a higher bar for these products, and that you know, one thing we talk about a lot is that there are no safety standards in the pet market. That pet products don't have to pass any safety standards to to get to market. That's something we really want to push for change in. There are all sorts of things that we want to be doing, and um, yeah, I think it, it can be hard not to have that megaphone quite yet. And we just want to we want to get out there and talk to as many people as we can and and build that credibility. Um, but I don't think that that is necessarily at odds with building the longer term vision because there's a way of getting out there and talking to consumers and getting the brand out there without necessarily pushing product.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, even the way that you phrase that is different than just talking about growth for the sake of growing, like getting the word out isn't even really connected to...
1: Right, exactly.
0: Sales. Sales,
1: necessarily.
0: Yeah. I mean, it probably is, but it's really more about informing people that there might be better options to what they've been experiencing. Looking back since you've launched Fable, is there any advice that you would give yourself before you had started? or? Ooh.
1: Um,
0: Not that it would change anything, but... Um,
1: There's just so much. It's really hard to, to condense it down. I think I probably felt this tension a little bit more in the very beginning, even though we weren't getting pressure from our investors to you know grow super fast or get to market super fast. I knew that there was a competitor that was um, coming up in this space. And so we really wanted to get to market as quickly as we could. And I think I also, especially having come from um, a software startup before, had this lean startup mentality of you get to market and then learn and and scrap your first version and then start another one. And um, we definitely did that in the beginning. I mean, we launched with a a really horrible website that we basically (laughs) built ourselves and um, really small batches of products where we would get feedback and then we would create another small batch and we would keep iterating on those as we, we came to a, came to a final product. And I don't necessarily think that was a bad way to do it, but I I think we probably could have, uh, if I, if I could go back and tell, you know, the Sophie of, of yesteryear, I would say you you don't have to rush to market. You, there will be, uh, there have always been other competitors in this space. We came into this market with some huge competitors. I mean, there are decades old businesses making pet products and there's no shortage of products on Chewy or Amazon. The goal is to be so different that it doesn't matter. Like who cares that there are dozens of other pet brands in this space. They're not doing what we're doing. And so I I would, I would just have told myself not to feel that kind of time pressure um, and not to feel the competitiveness because I think some amount of competitiveness is good, but if you're really doing something different, it won't matter. Consumers will see that.
0: Yeah. I I feel like the I feel like that's difficult for anyone is to just focus on what they're doing. You know, like your interests with the product instead of focusing on what everyone else is doing, which it seems like that's like a yeah. pretty big trend right considering how similar most products are yeah well thank you so much for taking the time to talk so good to meet you
1: you too so super fun